like us this evening to consider together Exodus chapter 25 and beginning at verse 10. Exodus chapter 25 and verse 10. Let us hear the word of God. They shall make an ark of sheeting wood. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. The English word ark comes from the Latin arca, which means a chest, a receptacle, uh, particularly one which holds valuable items. So we may think of a money chest or a treasure chest. The Hebrew word translated ark here in Exodus 25 and verse 10 was also employed to describe the coffin in which Joseph's body was laid. The Lord here tells Moses to make an ark out of shittim wood, which is the wood from the acacia tree. Now the dimensions of this wooden container, this chest, uh, are also laid out for us here. They are in cubits, uh, a cubit being approximately 18 inches. The shape of the ark then was rectangular, uh, measuring two and a half by one and a half by one and a half cubits. Or that is roughly 114 centimetres in length 69 centimetres in depth and 69 centimetres in height. Or in the imperial system, uh, 45 inches in length, 27 inches in depth and 27 inches in height, or 2 foot 3 high. So that's the size of the ark. Um, we're told in verse... 11, thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, within and without shalt thou overlay it, and shalt make upon it a crown of gold round about. So this ark is overlaid with pure gold. And that, of course, immediately reveals to us its very special and sacred nature. We are told that it has a crown round about it. Um, This is probably a golden rim. Encircling it all the way around like an ornamental wreath. And we are further told in verse 12, And thou shalt cast four rings of gold for it. Put them in the four corners thereof. And two rings 
shall be in the one side of it and two rings in the other side of it. So golden rings are to be placed at the four corners of the ark. These are for purposes of transport so that golden poles could be placed through the rings enabling the Levites to carry the poles on their shoulders without actually touching the ark. Verse 13 And thou shalt make staves of sheeting wood and overlay them with gold. And thou shalt put the staves into the rings by the sides of the ark that the ark may be borne with them. The staves are the poles which we just referred to. Now the ark, this golden chest, was so holy that no one could touch it and live. And so that is why very special precautions had to be taken in the transport of the ark. Now amongst the Levites, the sons of Kohath had special responsibility for carrying the ark. Uh, we read in uh, Numbers 4 and verse 15, The sons of Kohath shall come to bear it, but they shall not touch any holy thing, lest they die. And of course, um, there is a, dr a dramatic instance uh, in the Old Testament of um, the ark being carried on a cart, uh, uh, the, the horses rise up, rear up, uh, the ark shakes on the cart and a man stretches out his hand to secure the ark and he is struck dead. We are told in verse 15, the stave shall be in the ring of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. So the poles or staves for transporting the ark were to be permanently positioned within their rings and were not removed after any one act of carrying. Um, and, and remember, when these items of furniture were, were first made, um, they were made at the time of the wanderings in the wilderness. And so the whole issue of transport um, was very important. The tabernacle was a movable temple. Now we're told in verse 16, Thou shalt put into the ark the testimony which I shall give thee. Thou shalt put into the ark the testimony which I shall give thee. The, the testimony refers to the two tablets of stone upon which God himself has written the Ten Commandments. This law was a testimony to the people to direct them in their duty and it would also be a testimony against them if they transgressed 
those laws. So one of the names of the Ark was actually the Ark of the Testimony. It was also called the Ark of the Covenant because the Ten Commandments were the declaration of God upon the basis of which the covenant between himself and Israel was concluded. We read in Deuteronomy 31 and verse 24. It came to pass when Moses had made an end of writing the words of this law in a book until they were finished, that Moses commanded the Levites, which bear the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book of the law, that it may be there for a witness against thee. And so we learn how man being in communion with God, particularly at this time the nation of Israel, can only be in communion with God in the context of obedience to God's laws. The Ark of the Covenant was at the heart of Israel's worship. What was inside the Ark? The two tablets of stone containing the Ten Commandments. So this shows us how central the law is to any communion we might have with God. Nor is this just an Old Testament concept. Because we read this in the New Testament. 1 John 2 verse 3. 1 John 2 verse 3. Hereby we do know him. Hereby we do know that we know him. If we keep his commandments. He that saith I know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. And so the very mark of being a born-again believer in communion with God is that he keeps the commandments. Not that he had some wonderful experience, but that he keeps the commandments. Now we further read about the construction of this ark in verse 17. And thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. Now we note here that there are dimensions of this item, called the mercy seat, are exactly the same as for the rest of the sacred chest itself, its sides and bottom part. We are now considering in verse 17 its top section. And it is called the mercy seat. Now, unlike all its other sides, its top cuff covering is to be made of pure solid gold, as opposed to sheeting wood covered with gold plating. 
This immediately suggests the key and unique nature of this top section, which we see is called the mercy seat. A literal translation of the Hebrew is that which atones, or the place of propitiation, the place of propitiation. In any discipline, in any field of learning, which is worth pursuing, there are important terms which perhaps we do not come across in everyday speech. But that does not mean that we should ignore those important terms because we do not immediately comprehend them. In recent years, we have all got used to employing terms which we would never have understood 20 years ago in respect to computers. And so anyone who wants to understand the Christian faith has to make some effort to understand the distinct terminology of Christian doctrine. And so it is important that we understand, for example, this word propitiation. Very important word. And one cannot really boil it down to a, a simpler English word. Propitiation means the satisfying of God's justice. Appeasing God's wrath. It is connected to atonement, but it is a little different from atonement. This top covering of the ark is called the mercy seat. As we said, that could also be rendered the place of propitiation. Another way uh, this term could be translated is the atonement cover. The atonement cover. Now, the thought in view is not the physical covering of the ark. Now, yes, the ark has this top piece which covers it called the mercy seat. But we are thinking of a different type of covering in this world. We are thinking of the spiritual covering of the sins of the people. The atonement cover. This top part of the golden chest is to be the place where atonement is to be made and sins are to be covered. Through the blood sprinkled upon this mercy seat, this place of propitiation, atonement would be effected between sinful Israel and the Holy God. This 
top part of the ark is called the mercy seat because it is the place where God makes his throne. And that is why the word seat is used. As he comes to dwell amongst a sinful people who are not deserving that he should dwell with them. Now, interestingly, if we think of the Hebrew word behind the word translated mercy seat, the Greek translation of that Hebrew word is the same word as is used for propitiation in Romans 3 and verse 25. Now, propitiation is both an Old Testament word and a New Testament word. As Christians, we, we must understand this word. So let us look at Romans, uh, the end of Romans 3.24 and then Romans 3.25. Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. As we have mentioned, our English word propitiation means to appease God's wrath, to expiate, to satisfy God's justice. So it's a more nuanced word than atonement. It's very closely connected to atonement. But it includes this element of satisfying the perfect justice of God. And because justice is satisfied, then there is a reconciliation between the sinner and God. Now, what is so significant for us as we consider, well, what, what does this Ark of the Covenant represent? What does this mercy seat represent? We need to remember that it is the Lord Jesus Christ who is the propitiation between man and God. It is in Christ that the sinner can approach God because God's wrath has been propitiated, satisfied. So we can call the Lord Jesus Christ the place of propitiation. And so this mercy seat, this top part of the ark, is a type of Christ. It represents Christ, who is called the propitiation, as we have just seen. Because he interposes himself between God our judge and the law. That God may deal with us, according to that law, but mercifully for Christ's sake, who has fulfilled the law on our behalf. So, in the furniture of the Old Testament tabernacle, and particularly in this item called the Ark of the Covenant, we find the work of Christ as the saviour of sinners being plainly 
foreshadowed. And we sing in our hymns about the mercy seat and approaching the mercy seat, the place of propitiation. In Jesus Christ, the justice of God is propitiated, satisfied. We are further told about the ark in verse 18. And thou shalt make two cherubims of gold. Of beaten work shalt thou make them in the two ends of the mercy seat. And make one cherub on the one end and the other cherub on the other end. Even of the mercy seat shall ye make the cherubims on the two ends thereof. So here we learn that two cherubim figures, cherubims are chief angels. They are part and parcel of the mercy seat, not added on as appendages, but made as one with the top covering of the ark. Now, in the New Testament, these cherubim figures on the top of the ark are described in Hebrews 9 and verse 5 as cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat. Cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat. They are given such a title because they are directly in the presence of the Lord, right by his glorious throne. And attending the place where God has promised to meet with his people. And that's the significance of the mercy seat with the two cherubim figures at either end. Because between the cherubim, God has promised to meet with his people. Verse 20. Cherubim shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and their faces shall look one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubims be. So the faces of these cherubim figures of pure gold are not looking outward, they're looking inward, toward the presence of the Lord. Constantly waiting upon him whose presence is manifest between them. They are also looking downwards towards the mercy seat itself. And this indicates that they are contemplating the wonder of the gospel. The wonder of God's mercy. To undeserving sinners. They are looking down and studying the mercy seat and contemplating the amazing grace of God to undeserving sinners. And of course, at the same time, they're looking down towards the law, the two tablets of stone. They are admiring the beauty 
and wisdom of God's commandments. Verse 20. The cherubim shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings. And their faces shall look one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubims be. So we emphasise here that the angels desire to look into this wonderful mystery of the gospel as the Apostle Peter explains to us in the New Testament. And um, their outstretched wings uh, over this mercy seat uh, also depict their humility at being in the presence of the Holy God. Verse 21, and thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark. And in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. And there will I meet with thee. And I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat. Verse 22, from between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony. Of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. And so now we see the amazing and fundamental significance of this item of furniture in the tabernacle. Verse 22. There will I meet with thee. And I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat from between the two cherubims. So this is the place of God's presence. This is the very throne of God. No wonder it is made of pure gold. The mercy seat is the throne of God in the midst of his chosen people. It is the footstool of the God of Israel. So, if we go to Psalm 80 and verse 1, Psalm 80 verse 1, we, hear, we read this. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, thou that leadest Joseph like a flock, thou that dwellest between the cherubims, shine forth. We could not understand Psalm 80 unless we first understand Exodus 25. Because God is described as the one who dwells between the cherubims in allusion to the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle and later in the temple. And so this is the great significance of this item of furniture, the Ark of the Covenant. It is the meeting place of the sinner with God by means of propitiation, the satisfying of God's justice. 
Now in verse 23 here, we have a description of another piece of sacred furniture in the tabernacle. This is known as the table of showbread. Verse 23. Thou shalt also make a table of sheeting wood. Two cubits shall be the length thereof, and a cubit the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. So this tells us, again, cubit being 18 inches, the table was 2 foot 3 inches high, 1 foot 6 inches deep, and 3 foot wide. It is made of the same sheeting wood as the Ark of the Covenant. Verse 24, And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, and make thereto a crown of gold round about. So, as with the ark, the table is embellished at its top with a golden crown or rim. And it is also as the ark covered in gold plate. Now, this ornamental rim around the table uh, is thought to have been raised above the level of the table to prevent anything placed on the table from falling off. Then we read in verse 25, Thou shalt make unto it a border of an handbreadth round about, and thou shalt make a golden crown to the border thereof round about. Now here we are told about a second artistic reach going all around the table, beautifying it. So the finished item would have been a truly remarkable sight. This is the whole point of everything about the temple. It is beyond the realm of the ordinary. You you would never see an ordinary table, no matter how expensive, quite like this table. It is beyond our normal imaginings because God is God. He belongs to a completely different realm to us. He is eternal spirit and we are mortal flesh. He is the creator, we are mere creatures. He is unspeakably pure and good, we are fallen and sinful. Yet, he calls man into fellowship with himself. Now we further read of the table of showbread in verse 26. And thou shalt make for it four rings of gold, and put the rings in the four corners that are on the four feet thereof. Over against the border shall the rings be for places of the staves to bear the table. Verse 28, thou shalt make the staves of sheeting wood and overlay them with gold that the table may be borne with them. So here we are told that at the top of the four feet or legs of the table, which hold it up, there are fashioned golden rings. And just as with the ark, the staves or poles 
are to be put through the rings for purposes of carrying. And these staves are also overlaid with gold. However, unlike the ark, these staves were taken out when the table was stationary in order not to encumber the priests engaged in their duties around this table. Verse 29 Thou shalt make the dishes thereof and spoons thereof and covers thereof and bowls thereof to cover with all of pure gold shalt thou make them. Notice that all the items to be placed upon this table are made out of pure gold. There is nothing mundane and ordinary about the worship of God. We need to remember that in our public worship. We should never endeavour to lay on a form of worship where the non-believer feels at home because the worship of Almighty God by those who are born again is something quite out of the ordinary. It's something very special. It's not every day. It's not mundane. We are lifted up onto a different plane. Worship is special. And if we look at the last 50 or so years, we see a downgrade in worship, a constant shift to the informal. We do not get anywhere in Scripture the notion that worship should be Informal. But sadly, many regard making Christian worship informal as a way to attract non believers. But our purpose is not to attract non believers on their terms, our purpose is to draw non believers on God's terms. And that includes regarding worship as something very special and very out of the ordinary. Now, we're told in this verse 29 that even the dishes or plates on which to place loaves of bread and even spoons and bowls are made out of pure gold. Now, the dishes or, or, or plates here would have been large and heavy. Uh, the word covers there comes from a verb meaning to be round and so may refer to cups, which may have contained wine. The spoons would contain incense. But all these items are made of pure gold, speaking to us of the majesty of God's presence. 
and of the privilege of being able to enter into his presence and to serve him. And so, in these details, even the spoons used to hold the incense, we're talking about small items here, but they are precious. And they're made of pure gold. You see, every detail of our Christian worship should be well thought through and carried out with the utmost reverence. Verse 30, Thou shalt set upon the table showbread before me always. Thou shalt set upon the table showbread before me always. And uh, particularly noteworthy in that verse is the phrase before me. Because we are thinking of the presence of God. Now, the word showbread in the Hebrew is literally the bread of the face, meaning God's face, God's presence. So it's the bread of God's presence. But we call it showbread because it is shown in the presence of God. On this table, bread is set before God's face. Now, a passage in Leviticus 24 helps us to understand the function of the table of showbread. Leviticus 24 and verse 5. Leviticus 24 and verse 5. We read, Thou shalt take fine flour, and bake twelve cakes thereof, two tenth deals shall be in one cake. And thou shalt set them in two rows, six on a row, upon the pure table before the Lord. And thou shalt put pure frankincense upon each row, as it may be on the bread for a memorial, even an offering made by fire unto the Lord. Every Sabbath he shall set it in order before the Lord continually, being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. And then we are told in verse 9, Leviticus 24, And it shall be Aaron's and his sons, and they shall eat it in the holy place. For it is most holy unto him of the offerings of the Lord, made by fire by a perpetual statute. So, here we are told that upon the table of showbread were placed each week, each Sabbath day, twelve loaves of bread, freshly baked. And so they were there for a week and then a fresh batch would be brought in each Sabbath day. Now, when the fresh batch were brought in and placed on the table, the replaced loaves were eaten by the priests. Now, the setting out of these loaves is described as their being set 
before the Lord. That's the key. These loaves are what is termed a meat offering or a grain offering. It's an offering set forth before the presence of God from the hand of the people. The fact that there are 12 loaves corresponds to the 12 tribes of Israel. So the loaves are an offering from the people to God from the fruit of their daily work upon the land. So in this table of showbread, bread shown before God, we see God's people setting forth before him their works. This is the produce of their fields, their labours in the fields. Now the fact that the priests themselves subsequently eat these loaves shows that the people were giving of their substance to maintain the priesthood and thus the work of God's service. The people are living out their daily lives as unto God and this is depicted by their ongoing presentation before the Lord of these loaves. And so the bread upon the table represents the fruit of the labour bestowed by Israel upon the soil of its inheritance. And it is a symbol for us of spiritual labour in the kingdom of God. So this bread shown before the Lord represents the offering of our service to God. We today must continually set forth before God the bread of our service. Being a Christian is not just a call to receive salvation. It is a call also to serve in all holiness of life. Ephesians 2 verse 10. Ephesians 2.10. Paul says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. The loaves on the table of showbread would have been of unleavened bread. Leaven being a biblical symbol of corruption. There must be nothing corrupt or tainted in that which is offered to God. Similarly, the table of showbread is called in Leviticus 24 and verse 6, as we just read, it is called the pure table. The pure table. Only that which is pure can be presented before God upon this table. Likewise, the service which we offer to God must be pure and holy. So we are learning profound spiritual lessons. 
from these two items of sacred furniture within the tabernacle and later the temple. The Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies speaks to us of God making himself present amongst sinners as he appears in their midst accompanied by the cherubim and above the mercy seat or the place of propitiation. It is only through the shed blood of Christ satisfying God's justice that any fallen son of Adam can have fellowship with God. That is what the mercy seat teaches us. And the ark also teaches us the absolute centrality of God's law because the ark contains the Ten Commandments. The table of showbread positioned in the holy place teaches us that the believer having been forgiven and saved through Christ's shed blood must then continually present before God's face the fruit of his labour the pure loaves of his service we are saved through Christ's sacrificial death he is our propitiation our means of propitiation we are saved in order subsequently to present our bodies to God as a living sacrifice. We are saved in order to serve. And that is the significance of the bread on the table constantly being presented before the Lord as the fruit of the people's labour in the fields. So, we see deep significance concerning these two items of furniture. The Ark of the Testimony or the Ark of the Covenant with its mercy seat speaks to us about salvation through the shed blood of Christ, having communion with God because Christ is the place of propitiation. But then having been saved, the table of showbread teaches us about the need to offer up pure and ongoing service to the Lord. So may he help each one of us to continually present before him the loaves of our holy lives and our sacrificial service. Amen.